Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Here's the word of God. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year uh, he shall go out free for nothing. Jumping down to verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Chapter 22, beginning in verse 5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and in his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and catches in the thorns so that uh, the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Jumping down to verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Uh, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Jumping down to uh, chapter 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Jumping down then, chapter 23, verse 14. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in, in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Uh, you shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you sh uh, shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on your way and to bring you to a place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you, caref if you carefully obey his voice and do uh, all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adver adversaries. Little by, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will be surely be a snare to you. Chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, uh, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near me, near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told uh, the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, uh, the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, the twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men, of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. 
And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it uh, on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses uh, rose and with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on uh, Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called, uh, called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, and the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like the devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, your servant. Uh, I pray you would anoint his voice and his lips, his, the, the uh, air that you give him to breathe. Father, may it proclaim your truth in your truth alone. I just pray you'd open our ears to hear what you have for us to hear. So, Father, we give you honor and glory and listen for your voice. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. I know what you're thinking. Finally, you know what to do with that baby goat that's been hanging around in the backyard. You don't have a baby goat? What about a vineyard? Anyone? I wish I had a vineyard. Um, You can laugh about it because... This is one of the places in Scripture that we tend to think of as really awkward. Like, why, why should we know this? Why should we understand this? Why should we even spend a, an entire Sunday morning talking about this? But actually, what, what I want to do this morning is hopefully give you some strategies for how you might continue to read this kind of a text, because this isn't the only Uh, text of its kind in the Bible. I don't know if you've heard of the book of Leviticus. If you're on the uh, Bible reading in a year plan, it's about uh, late February, early March that Bible reading gets really dreary, doesn't it? Uh, If you're just trying to understand even what's going on. A lot of killing things, a lot of weird laws about things that don't seem to relate. Now, the thing is that as people that would not claim that that law is binding upon us because we have Jesus, it still doesn't help us understand what to do with this. And so we need some strategies to understand a little bit better how to understand God's law and what his covenant was all about. And does it even apply to us? And so that's how we're going to divvy up our morning. Um, We're going to first talk about the the book of the covenant And the name of the book of the covenant comes actually from chapter 24 where Moses says, here's what the covenant says and uh, wrote it all down and put it in a book. The book of the covenant, the content of what uh, the covenant was about. Now, I shouldn't assume that everyone understands and knows what a covenant is. A covenant is, is essentially, in some ways it's difficult to explain, in some ways it's very simple. But a covenant, the covenant that God is explaining here is the way that God wants to relate to his people. And that's what his covenants are all about. Uh, 
his covenants are all about this main theme, and that's what we find in the book of Exodus. And this is the main theme of the book of Exodus. God wants to be known, and he wants to know his people. God wants to be known, and he wants to know his people. That's actually something that has not changed for you and I, that God still today does want to be known, but God also wants to know his people. He loves his people, and he loves to know what they're like. And so that's going to frame everything in terms of the book of the covenant. But the book of the covenant doesn't mean anything unless first the covenant has been made. And how is that covenant made? Well, that's why we need to talk about the blood of the covenant. Uh, why this is important to the relationship that God has with his people. But lastly, and lots of great leadership books out there now talk about the why. That the why is important. So lastly... We want to finish off with not just the, the book of the covenant, not just the blood of the covenant, but the why, the purpose of God's covenant with us. So first of all, the book of the covenant, or what is the law really good for? Uh, what's it for anyways? You ever wondered that? You ever get really bored in a message, uh, sermon of some sort? Are you ever bored enough to read some of this Old Testament? It does read like Old like case law. Now, I know I have lawyers in the room, so I've got to be careful in how I try to generalize things, but, but, but case law, in some ways, is, is given to uh, give application to law. It's, uh, they're very specific, and yet, in, this, in some ways, they're not designed just to be uh, comprehensive, but an idea of how to apply a particular law. That's, that's, that's why case law continues to grow. That's why in all these law movies you see, well, in the case of this particular law, so-and-so did this. And because of that, now I can apply the law this way. And that's exactly what we have in the Book of the Covenant. We don't have a comprehensive list of every single law there ever is in every single way to apply it. The reason why it's specific is not simply to corner people into a specific idea, but to give uh, illustrations of how the law may be applied, uh, how God's law may be applied. And every uh, covenant actually had uh, three things to it. That, that is, number one, a promise an oath or a promise that included the stipulations of that oath and promise. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what, what you're going to do. Then there was a curse or a penalty for if, if you decided not to do your part in the covenant, this is what would happen. And then uh, there was a ceremony involved that somehow illustrated this symbolically. And that's why you have uh, in... Actually, we were studying it in um, the academy this morning, uh, where one of the ways that you symbolically uh, displayed that God was going to be faithful to his covenant was to take two, uh, a couple of animals, to cut them in half and put one piece of the animal here, one piece of the animal there, and, and for him to walk, uh, the person to walk through between these two saying, this is what will happen to me if I break this. If I break my promise, I should be like these two pieces of carcass. That's what, what I'm hoping to bring upon myself. And so uh, that's what covenants essentially uh, we, we see throughout uh, the scriptures. That's how we see them instituted. And that's actually what we have in our text as well. We have the way that uh, God says, if I break my promise, this is what I want to be done to me. But we know that God does not break his promises, and we'll, we'll get into that. But there are three basic categories that we see of all this law. Um, and I don't know if this is helpful. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this to help frame how we understand the law. We're not actually just talking about uh, the Ten Commandments. Um, the Bible often refers to the Torah, which is the law, and just kind of it's a generalized understanding of the law. And here's what the law is made up of. It's made up of civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. Those are the three categories. Uh, I, I don't think Israel would have ever understood it this way, that there are these kind of bifurcations it, within the law, but that's how we can understand it. There are laws that pertain to the way that a society is civically ordered. 
Uh, in, in other words, th- this is why you have h- how to deal with slaves and marriage and it, at times textiles and growing things. This is how God wanted his society ordered. Uh, this doesn't mean when God made this law that one way was morally right and one way was morally wrong. Actually, he was saying, no, the, my people, I want these laws to imitate something specifically in my character. And so I want the way in which this law is made to help them understand the God that they worship and serve. There's also the ceremonial law that has to do with kind of the religious life, the temple life, the worshiping life of someone of an ancient Hebrew. Um, This is not, again, about the rights and the wrongs that certain types of blood and certain types of blood are not, or that, you know, touching a dead person is wrong. No, it simply is there to illustrate something about God. Because what God is trying to do for his people is take things that are really vague to them and make them clear. Something our culture is actually trying to do to us. The reverse, right? That's how how a culture gets away from God. A culture gets away from God when they take something that has been made clear and make it blurry. I mean, when when you nail down exactly what's going on with gender these days, what you are seeing is, is not clarity, but... It's fuzzy, isn't it? Something that was clear or used to be clear 10 years ago is no longer clear. Something that God said was black and God said was white is now, oh, it's gray. And that's actually how we stray from God is when we take something that he has made very clear to us and we make it fuzzy. We blur the line, so to speak. And the ceremonial law was, was put in place by God to help understand the parameters around things, to separate things out, because he wanted clarity on certain issues. He wanted people, his people to understand that he was not just one of them, he was set apart from them. That's why you have a Sabbath day that's holy. It's set apart, just like God. That's why you have the image of God as something that no one can put their finger on. No images of God, because no one can do this correctly. There's also the moral law, which ends up being summarized by the Ten Commandments, which is there are rights and there are wrongs. There are things that God never wants done. There are things that he always wants done that would apply to all ages and all times. Uh, I don't know if that's helpful for you, but that helps understand perhaps some of the different categories that show up. Now, as I was saying before, uh, it's not really neat and tidy for us in the scriptures. It seems to be all over the place. Sometimes we're talking about slaves. Sometimes we're talking about boiling goats and mother's milk, and sometimes who knows what they're talking about. But we need some strategies, and I want to talk about two that I don't think are useful, but that we actually try to do, even as Christians, and are very unhelpful for us, and one that I think the Bible itself uh, commends and shows us how to do. So the first strategy we can have for these kind of texts is to take them literally, Literally. Okay, some of you, your back is up against the wall because it sounds like, oh, you don't want me to take the Bible literally. Well, sometimes where God wants us to take it literally. But there are places in Scripture where God does not want us to take his Scripture literally. He wants us to take it figuratively. Uh, For example, when Jesus talks about lust, And about wanting something that's not yours, particularly another marriage that's not yours, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, Jesus didn't go, okay, I'll I'll wait here while you guys go obey this, right? Like, what he was not intending is for someone to go out and say, find a spoon or whatever it is, you, 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 apparently you can't really poke your eye out. You can poke it in, but you can't poke it out. But you can gouge it out. You can dig it out. Exactly. See how silly this gets right away. 
Now, what was Jesus trying to say? Jesus was trying to say, it's a serious issue what you look at. And what you look at affects your heart. And so you need to be drastic in what you're willing to do to get rid of something that's causing disease in your heart. Okay? That's what Jesus wanted to say. But again, when we use the word literally, there are places where Jesus is sarcastic. There are places where Jesus is exaggerating for a a specific effect. And these things are all part of how God's word is to be understood. And we can't spend a lot of time with it this morning. I know that that potentially could be confusing for some of you. Hang on to the end. The second way we sometimes do this, uh, treat God's law in particular, is we, we think of it symbolically. Symbolically. In other words, we try to pick and choose a little bit more what seems to be relevant and what doesn't seem to be relevant. You ever done that? It's like you're reading along, you're like, oh, I, I could see how this, is, uh, this, this seems really relevant to me. And then the next text is, do not mix textiles when you wear your clothing. Like, don't put cotton and linen together. Don't do a 80 wool, 19 nylon, one acetate. What is it, acetate? Is that right? I can't believe we're wearing acetate, but we are. What, which is which? Which, is, which, is, which should we take seriously? Which should we take seriously? Which, which should we try to apply? Which shouldn't we try to apply? Um, I, I, for one, have spent way too much time trying to go, how, how do I apply this particular text to my life? Some of it is impossible, the stuff about slavery. I... I know this comes as a surprise to you. That doesn't apply to me right now. The, the stuff about the land doesn't apply to me right now. Uh, the stuff about vineyards, I wish it applied to me, but it doesn't apply to me right now. So what do I do with those? Well, well here's why I think not just me, but actually the book of Galatians says, here's how you need to understand God's law. There are three good uses of the law, because there's a book written, there's a letter written, there's a couple of verses in Galatians, aka all of Galatians, that this is the issue that was going on in that church. Okay, 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 I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. So what in the world do I do with all this law, all this case law? Does it have any use? And I've heard this. Well, I don't even read my Old Testament because it doesn't apply to me. Like, it doesn't, there's, there's no reason to even know this. And that's the issue that's going on in Galatia. And I think it lay, it's laid out for us that there are three good ways to understand, and they actually do have to come in this order. The first way we need to understand God's law And first, good use is that it's like a revealing mirror that reveals both the character of God and ourselves. It's a revealing mirror that reveals what God is like and what we we are like. How many looked at a mirror this morning? Wow, you're very impressive that you didn't. Why would you look in a mirror? You look in a mirror... Not because you want to look like something, but because you want to know, what do I actually look like? I mean, there's a big difference, right, between the way you want your hair to look and the way it actually looks. Am I right or am I right? Or doesn't look, apparently. I mean, that's what mirrors do. Mirrors don't, they they don't fudge. They don't say, well, you tried hard. So I will give you this impression of yourself. Now, Amir says, here's exactly what you look like. In my family, we have those, like, magnif- magnified, magni- magnified mirrors or whatever. I don't know why we have these. <laughs> I mean, I look like an alien under that thing. <laughs> but what, what does it do? It, it magnifies what's actually there, not what I thought was there. And, and it's useful for that reason. Uh, mirrors aren't 
don't have the purpose of making you feel good about yourselves. They have the purpose of making you understand who you are and what you look like. And this is what God's law is supposed to be used as. It's supposed to be used as in a picture of what God is actually like. Think of all the examples. So you have some examples, Trev. Yes, I do. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. How is that a mirror about us and about God? Here's how. It's a mirror about God. That actually is a practice that was commonly used in Canaanite religion. If that word sounds familiar to you, it should. Because God is actually preparing his people to enter a land called Canaan. And he says to them, you're not supposed to make any covenants with that group of people. I don't want you taking their religious practices and their understanding of how the world works and incorporating that into your own system. I want you separate. I want you worshiping me. I'm the God who brought you out of Exodus. I'm the, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who saved you. Not the Canaanite God. And that particular law was, had to do with uh, twisting and tainting sexuality and fertility. In other words, it was a way of saying, here's how I get me some babies, by worshiping this God. You see, like the mother's milk thing, there was some sort of weird connection there that they had, and God says, I don't want you tainting your life with what I'm doing, because I am the one that provides life. I'm the one that provides your family structure. But I don't want you doing it, because if left to your own, that's exactly what you're going to do. How many of you are looking for some rules that you can get away with in the Bible? That you're like, okay, God says I can do this, but what if I did this? then technically I can obey him, but I can still do this. Do you not do that? Do we not do that? That's what we're like. So it reveals, don't be so sure you wouldn't try this if somehow Instagram came out with, there's a hashtag boil it in your mother's milk goat thing going on. Some of you would say, hey, if it gets... If it gets me some of the fertility that I would hope, why not? What's the harm? What's the harm? You see how it is a mirror to your own life. It is a mirror to who God is. That's the proper use of it. Improper is like, good grief, at least there's one commandment I've obeyed today. That's the wrong use of that law. Absolutely. Because we know this, laws don't make good people, do they? They don't. I think, actually, this is the second part, but they make bad people. <laughs> or at least they show who is bad and who is good. There's a speed limit on Deerfoot, I think, still, right? Still intact? <laughs> no? Oh, does that law make you a good driver? I would argue it might make you a bad driver. Like, what, what does that mean? What does the speed limit on the Deerfoot mean? Nothing. Nothing except for here's how someone could catch you if you break it. That's it. And that's exactly the second use of the law that's good. That's laid out in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24 says this, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now there's a couple of terms in here that I think are important for us. Uh, number one, we were held captive, essentially by a taskmaster, that's the image. Actually, that image comes straight from the book of Exodus in reference to the Egyptian taskmasters, okay? So if you think um, uh, this guardian, so to speak, the law as a guardian is a good kind of guardian, then you misunderstand what the text is trying to say because that kind of guardian is not like security that you would hire. That's actually ripped out from Greek culture. It's the kind of schoolmaster 
That's harsh. Do you ever have one of these? I'm old enough that I can remember the yardstick. Remember that? And if you weren't paying attention, what'd you get? Whack! Stop fooling around, kid! Hypothetically, I never got that, of course. Right? Maybe a rat on the knuckles. Can you remember those? Believe we had those days? Hey, come on, kid. Wake up. Let's go here. We're over here, Trev. That's what this law is supposed to be like. It's supposed to remind us, hey, you're in trouble. You think things are going well? You think you're doing good? Here's the law. This will remind you it isn't that good. It's not, you're not as good as you think you are. Things aren't going as well as you think they are. That's actually the purpose of the law. That, doesn't that seem harsh? It is. That's exactly what the text says. It's a harsh taskmaster that rings us by the neck and says, get back here and understand you are in big trouble. You're not, you're not who you think you are. It's like a mirror. It's like that gigantic mirror. That makes you go, ooh, is that really what I look like? Yeah, it's exactly what the law is trying to do. You should feel when you read the law, like, I could never do that. That's what you should feel like. I cannot do this. I think there's a book, actually. It was a, a, some, some guy who thought it would be funny to spend the year living biblically. I think that's, I've never read the book. I think the premise essentially is he wants to show how dumb Scripture is by obeying every law and how ridiculous it is to actually believe that this is God's word and that has any value. The problem is he's the one that looks kind of dumb by the end of it because he misunderstands God's intention for the law, which was to show him that he can't actually follow everything that he's supposed to. And that's what the people say. The people say in Israel exactly what we would say. Hey, trust us, God. We'll totally follow everything that you tell us. Didn't they just say this? And then they, I wrote in, the, in my margin, no, they didn't. But that's what we do. God, God, just, um, can you answer this prayer? I, I promise you, I will never disobey you again. Now the big problem is you've broken that promise too, haven't you? Because I have. Because this is the way our hearts work. We need that taskmaster that says, hey, right here, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. If someone doesn't save you, you're in huge trouble. And now that you understand that, and have used the law to help you understand that, you can actually do the third thing chronologically, which is now you can see how the law actually shows us the right way to live. But if you do that too soon, if you try to obey God's law to bring life, it won't work. Number one, you won't do it. Number two, you'll be so discouraged, you'll give up trying. And you'll actually end up in the place you should have already been. Now, if you start looking through some of these laws, you can begin to see just how comprehensive a God he is. Just how much he cares about every last thing. When you start seeing that God cares about um, all of, I, I, I wrote out the entire text. Yes, I did. Because I needed to get my head around it. And what I began to notice as I wrote this out was how many times these laws specifically target people who are in disadvantaged positions and how God listens to them and takes care of them. It's amazing. There's laws about people that have accidentally killed people, people that have been raped, people that have been taken advantage of and sold into slavery, 
people that have animals that just don't seem to keep on their side of the fence and go haywire in someone else's fence, on someone else's field, and start fires. It's, it's about people who need a mediator, who need someone to help them out of their situation. The, the laws really don't cover anyone uh, of privilege, those with some sort of privilege or who have the money to buy themselves out of their problems. The laws don't seem to cover that. Why? Because God wants to be known as the God of the widow, the orphan, the underprivileged, the down and outer, the outsider. The I, I'm not with the cool kids club. That's what God wants to be known as. That's who he is. He says, you know, you know there's, there's laws. Just so you know, if this happens and this happens, I hear the prayers of the person who says, help me. In this way, the law then becomes beautiful, doesn't it? It can become something very beautiful. That's why the psalmist in, in Psalm 119, David, actually says, I love your law. For decades I have misunderstood that verse. When, when David said, oh, how I love your law. I was like, seriously, you love that stuff? You love Leviticus numbers in February? Are you sure, David? How could you love the law? He can say he loves the law because he says, I see the God behind the law, and I love him. I love the way he just cares about what I wear, how I spend my time, how I spend my money. I love that he's a God who hears me if I'm down and out. And so the law then can reveal what pleases God. But I'll tell you this, you'll only want to please God if you love him. You'll only want to please God if you love him. I can remember back in the day when I first met my wife, and I would start hobbies that I had no business starting because I loved her. I started liking bagels. Because <laughs> it meant I get to go to a bagel shop with my, my what I was sure was going to be my wife. It took a f- short four years to persuade her of that, but (laughs) I got the job done. (laughs) I started writing things in longhand. Why would I do that? Because someone said, you should. If you want to show your devotion to what you think your future wife is, here are the things you do. No! Because I loved her and it didn't matter what she wanted. I wanted to please her. I wanted to make her happy. I wanted to make her laugh. I'd do almost anything to make her laugh because I loved her laugh. Still do. What drives that? Love. Love is drives it. You see, law can't do this. Law can't drive your love. Your love must drive the law. Some of us do not understand this about God. We think God is so impressed with us because we obey. And he says, oh, you're, you're, you're just missing. What I'm after is your love. That's what I want from your heart. I don't want you arm-twisting, obeying all these little rules. I want you to say, you know what? God, doesn't matter what you ask of me. I love you so much. I'll do it. That's what love does. Love can take what feels like a law and turn it into something beautiful. And so this is, this is what we're supposed to understand about God's law. And I would summarize that by saying, we don't need to take God's, or, sorry, we don't need to follow God's love or law literally, symbolically, but we do need to take it very seriously. And that's what it means to take it seriously. To say, this shapes my whole life. God's law shapes how I understand him, how I understand myself, 
how I'm supposed to relate to others. It gives me the blueprint, even when I don't understand it. This is the way that God said would work, and I trust him. I'm finally at this point, it seems, in my Christian life, where I'm starting to understand that sometimes I won't know why God has asked me to do something. I simply have to trust that it's the best way. He'll always bring us to these points. But how does this relationship even happen with Israel? How does it happen? Well, that's why we need the blood of the covenant. Some of us actually have this idea that, um, oh, you like the God of the New Testament and not the God of the Old Testament because the God of the Old Testament seems really mean and cruel and harsh, and the God of the New Testament seems genuinely happy and helpful. And that, that's, that's a wrong image of how we're supposed to see God's word. Because actually, we have everything we have in the relationship with God still based on blood to this day. So all that stuff about Leviticus and blood and sacrifice matters because that's still the way to God. Now, our understanding of whose blood was shed has changed, but not that it's blood. It's still life. Blood represents life for almost every culture. And this is how Israel gets in. That's what we see in chapter 24 as we move into uh, how this blood paved the way for relationship. Chapter 24, verse 4 and 5. He, that is Moses, rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars. According to the 12 tribes, men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And so how God lets his people, how God makes a promise to his people is he makes sure there's a mediator, an altar, and a sacrifice. And that's still how it works today. But here is the difference. The book of Hebrews says Jesus is all of these things. Jesus is the mediator, he is the altar, and he is the sacrifice. He provides a sacrifice, he is the sacrifice. This is why Jesus becomes then a picture in Hebrews of the once and for all. You don't need someone else. In fact, if you look in your Bible, often the title of what you see in Hebrews is, Jesus is better than Moses. He's a better sacrifice. Why? Because he's once and for all. This happened in chapter 24, but you know what? It happens again and again and again. Every year they have to do the same thing over again. Every year they find themselves in the same situation. We're in trouble. Every year they have to slaughter another goat, another heifer, another dove. Every year they have to put their hands on that animal. And then what that did was essentially symbolically transferred their identity upon to an animal. And that's what sacrifice is. Sacrifice is where you give to someone else or you willingly take what someone else should have suffered upon yourself, right? So in the game of hockey, I don't know, I don't watch hockey very much, but if you get a slap shot from the blue line, I think, that's how it works. That's a long shot, right? Yes? No? Somebody wake? Um, and you lay down in front of it, what do you say? Oh, that guy sacrificed his what? Body. For what? The team. He doesn't deserve that shot, but he takes it upon himself. I can't believe they do that still to this day. I'd never do that. I'd say someone else can sacrifice their body for this team. I will sacrifice my time for this team. But it's called a sacrifice. No one ever says, that guy laid in, down in front of that slap shot as punishment. Right? Because... Punishment is just getting what you deserve. Sacrifice is taking what you don't deserve. 
And that's why sacrifice was such a big part of this entry into the covenant. Somebody's going to pay for you to be in relationship with me. But you know what? I'm not going to make you pay. You can make an animal pay if you so choose. So place your hands on the head of this animal and symbolically transfer what is coming to you, which is you disobeyed. You're in trouble. You should be penalized for this. But instead of you taking that penalty, that innocent animal, lamb, dove, goat, bull, whatever it might be, who was perfect, who doesn't deserve this. I mean, think about all the stuff that's going through animals' brains. If we could find out, it would be like, hey, wh- what did I do? <laughs> that's what every animal would say. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Why do I have to get my throat slit because you're an idiot? But, but that's exactly what's going on. An animal that does not deserve this gets it so that you can receive what you do not deserve. That's how sacrifice works. That's why blood is still important. And as Hebrews says, this is why Jesus is so important to our relationship with God, is because he's the sacrifice. His blood is shed. He put himself on the altar. He did not deserve that, but he did that so you could get what you don't deserve. And we see, lastly, that there is purpose in this covenant. And I think this is important. Because we talk about this as though it's just like, yeah, yeah, great, great. You know, Jesus sacrificed for me. Even this week, I was like, Jesus... This is, this is really valuable. How come I don't take it that seriously sometimes? How come this does not get me up in the morning like it should? How come this does not break my heart that I willingly put you on the altar? As if it's something you had to do and should have done because I'm a really good guy. Why do I treat you like that? Well, here is the why of the covenant. The why of the covenant has to do with three things. It has to do with a meeting, a message, and a meal. A meeting. In chapter 24, verses 9 and 10, we actually see that the purpose of the covenant was not simply to show God's glory, but actually so that they could meet God. They could see him. How many of you want to see God? Like that would do something for you. To say, hey, if I could just, if I could just catch a glimpse of God, I wouldn't need anything else. Have you ever promised God that? God, you know, just just manifest yourself just like that, just just like you did to Moses, and you know what? I'll never ask anything ever again. Good enough, I can walk away. It's not true. It's not true. We already have all we need, and we're still asking for more. God wants us to understand something about this meeting, though, that this meeting that he has with his people does not come because they have obeyed any of the law yet. In fact, they've already proven that they are going to disobey it. But the people get a chance in verse 9 and 10 to behold God. They saw the God of Israel. Now, when you heard that read, and you were like, wait a second, wait a second. So the people saw God, but all they saw was kind of the the pavement underneath his feet. Couldn't I get a better description than that? And I would say, no, I don't think we need it. I I think that is vague because God's like, because I will decide how I reveal myself to you. You don't decide how I will be revealed to you. You don't have this relationship because of something you've done. You have this relationship because of something I am. 
But for some reason, although we are, these people are promised, hey, in, in chapter, um, I believe it's uh, 19 or 18, 19, Exodus 19, don't come too far up the mountain or you'll die. God's saying, I am so brilliant that you can't handle the truth. <laughs> you can't handle me. You couldn't handle me if you actually saw me in your state. You would feel so bad about yourself. You will feel so unworthy. It would physically kill you, and I don't want that for you, so I'm only going to allow you to see as much as I'm going to reveal. But they beheld God. And you know why God didn't lay a hand on the people? I don't know. I have no idea. But it seems just like God to me to say, yeah, you know what you were expecting is they should have dropped dead, but they didn't. Why? I think because God's just gracious. I don't think it means, oh, so everyone should have just gone up. No, that's, that's not how we're supposed to understand that. This shows that God is so gracious. The disciples of Jesus asked Jesus the same thing in John chapter 14. There's a guy named Philip. This probably sounds like something I would say, so I identify with Philip. If I could just see God, I would believe in him. One of the disciples of Jesus asked the same thing. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. God, just, just wanted, sorry, Jesus, I just, just show us the Father, that's it. Won't ask any more. You won't hear from us ever again. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is what we need to hear again and again. Some of us want a deeper experience of God. We have it. It's Jesus. Jesus is our deeper experience of God. When we see Jesus, we see everything that God wants to reveal to us. We see everything, every way in which God wants to show himself to us and make us known. This is why it, it automatically should should blend into reading God's word because that's where we find out who Jesus is. But then there's a message that comes along with this covenant. And that message actually is the same to us, I think, as it was to them, although it comes in different words. But this is the message that I think God wants all those in his covenant to know is that the Father wants friends not slaves. This is precious to me because I understand God as my boss. I do not understand God as my friend. I understand a God who would say, I could use Trev to get some stuff done around here. What I don't understand and what mystifies me is God says, I don't care what Trev does. I just want to be his friend. That amazes me that the God of the universe has said, I am not embarrassed of you. I'm not ashamed to call you my son. I'm not ashamed of how I made you. Some of you need to hear that message of the covenant. That God does not want you part of his covenant because you add something to his kingdom, but because he said, I just want to. I just love them. You have those people in your life and they tell you, oh, you, you know, that weirdo or that weird thing, and you're like, I know, I know, it's weird. I just love it. I don't care. I don't care what you think. I love it. The message is the Father wants us also to experience the fullness of his glory. John 17, to 26 actually talks about a prayer that Jesus has. It says, the glory you have given me, that's he's talking to his Father, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. 
like, listen carefully. Jesus is saying, my BFF is the Father, and that's what I want for you. I want you to have what I have. I have unparalleled access to the Father. I have unparalleled friendship with the Father, and I want to give that all to you. That's the message of the covenant. What's the third part of the message? The Father wants us to experience all that Jesus inherits through his perfect obedience. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the Bible saying, every single thing that Jesus inherits, we get to inherit when we trust in him. Everything. Eternity. Rule over all creation, a redeemed creation. Access to actually see what God looks like. You know, some of you know that my youngest brother is at this time with Jesus. Do you know what keeps going through my head? I'm so jealous of you, Rod. You get to see everything. You get to see what God is like. It's not confusing for you anymore. I'm wondering, what's he going to be like? What am I going to say? Am I going to be like one of those idiots that meets a famous person and just blurts out something stupid? <laughs> is it going to be beautiful? Is it going to be overwhelming? Am I going to want to say something? I'm going to want to shut up. I'll probably shut up. I want to see what he sees. We get that because the Father wants us to get that. And we also see, lastly, in the text, and this is where we spend some time celebrating together the Lord's table, because there's a meal. There are different types of sacrifices, five different types. One of the types in Leviticus is actually called a peace offering. And so, one of the sacrifices is to cover atonement, like to pay the price. One of them is to like cleanse certain things. And then there's a sacrifice that's called the just because I love you sacrifice. Like as if just overwhelmed and you just love God and just want to hang out with him, it's called the peace offering. That's how I want us to view this today. This isn't a magical meal. This is verse 11. They beheld God, ate and drank fellowship. Hey God, it's so good to be with you. Sacrifice. It's really cool. Just because I love God and he loves me, sacrifice. I just had to. You ever send a card or flowers just because, have no reason, just want to? Just affection. This is what God's, this is God's card to us. I just want to hang out. I just want to be your friend. I just want to tell you how much I love you and proud of you I am. I just want to tell you all of the things that are, you think are holding you back are not holding you back. Just so you know, I've forgiven everything. Just so you know, I'm working on your conscience to help you obey. Just so you know, I'm building my image inside of you even while you sleep. I, I don't know about you, but I need to remember that. And that's what this is. This is a meal to remind us of these things. And so let's celebrate it together. The two symbols of the meal are, first of all, the wafer. This represents what used to be bread. This is a representative of the body of Jesus. This is God saying, I did not want to remotely save you. I wanted to come be with you in person. So I sent my son who did not want to be remote. He wanted to be in person. He came here to do what you should have done. So let's remember that Jesus came to us, that God came to us to this earth so that we could have a covenant with him.
We also remember through the symbol of the cup, which is representative of the blood. Aren't you glad that the way I helped you understand your freedom in Jesus is not to take this and sprinkle it all over some of you this morning? A, it probably wouldn't do anything, and B, be mad. But what this is, is a reminder is that spiritually, this is what God does through Jesus Christ as he sprinkles our hearts that makes us want to love him and obey him. That actually makes us viscerally feel forgiven of our sin and our shame and all that we have done wrong and all that we haven't done right. And so we remember the new blood of the new covenant in Jesus Christ together. Let's celebrate. And so, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for making us your children. We thank you for giving us all things that the Father wanted to give to you. We thank you that you were so generous with yourself. Jesus, create in us hearts, create in us a white-hot passion to understand and know you more and to act like your kids. In your name we pray, amen.